Welcome to the Impact of Educational Leadership Podcast with ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. Welcome to another impactful night of the Impact of Educational Leadership. This is episode 65. I'm your host, ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. Tonight's panelists are Dr. Billy Snow. Please tell us the people, Dr. Billy Snow. Hey, good evening, everybody. Good evening. And we have Shelly Anderson. Shelly Anderson, please say hello to the people. Good evening. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, hello. And we have our dear friend, Buddy Thornton. Please say hello to the people. Yes, good evening. It's an honor to be here with my fellow guests and peers. And uh, let's, uh, let's make this rock and roll. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, tonight's topic is roles of the parents, community, government, and education in adolescent development. The COVID-19 pandemic has continually altered the way we exhale, unite, and live. Since spring 2020, students and educators of all levels have pivoted toward the digital age and beyond, which means that there is a need for universal interventions in schools, communities, and education that seek to promote strategies for academic success. These adjustments haven't come without growing pains, though. A dependency on technology to bring the classroom into students' homes has presented a host of new applications that need IT support, learning environments on every layer that can match up with students' interests, motivations, to affect youth purpose and engagement through cultural progressions that play out into adulthood are necessary. Understanding these types of adolescent characteristics are needed to develop preventive interventions and policies that will be necessary to reduce communication barriers and balance the playing field moving forward. Tonight, I want to engage in a conversation with this panel. I want to start first with Buddy Thornton. Mr. Buddy, please tell the listener audience a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently, sir. Well, uh, I'm a doctoral learner at GCU here in Phoenix, uh, working on my dissertation. I've completed all my classes. And I'm the owner of BCT Mediations Plus. And right now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we are focusing heavily on helping parents and families reduce stress in their sphere of influence. We uh, have found that most parents struggle mainly because they've increased the amount of time that they're interacting with their children and other close family members. And this is not a dynamic that uh, has been normalized across the American culture for at least two to three decades. 
So the pandemic has basically forced everyone to get a little closer together, and that's basically what we are doing right now is we're focusing heavily on helping families cope with stress. Thank you for that response, and thank you for telling us about yourself and what you're doing currently. You know, one word comes to mind when I think about you, uh, Mr. Buddy Thornton, and that's discipline. You have a large family. Um, it's generational. I think it goes on for four generations, and they all live under one roof at your home, in your house. And so you are a witness to different characteristics every day from your family members. When you see them and passing and talking and, and sharing a meal, my question for you is how, how do you reveal your own personal situation uh, to, show, to show others, to show adolescents and parents how to better prepare their children to transition into adulthood? That's my question for you. Well, Isaiah, when you presented me with the question, I broke it down into two uh, very distinct components. Number one is, how do you reveal or share your own personal situation appropriately with students or younger family members or people that you uh, interact with? And the second question was, how does that sharing help prepare adolescents for a successful and purposeful transition into adulthood? And in every dynamic that uh, my team and I have looked into, we come back to the exact same two components. Number one, we have to be willing to exhibit vulnerability. Children look to us as role models, but when they only see the exterior and they only see that nothing ever bothers us, nothing ever goes wrong, nothing is ever challenging, they get this false impression and they they, they realize that they're struggling at whatever level they are, no matter what their age group is from three, four, five on up. They see that they struggle and they don't see you struggle. They get this misaligned concept that once they become an adult, everything's going to become easy. Everything's going to become uh, rosy is, I guess, a good way to put it. And so it's very important that the adults who interact with adolescents and younger children exhibit a level of vulnerability. That doesn't mean we have to tell them everything that happens in our world, but we do have to let them realize that we struggle every day with the same types of things they struggle with. You know, how do we accomplish this? How do we get there? How do we do the things we do? It's very important that they see that we are like them, only with more experience. You know, they, they struggle to understand how we can do what we do, and they realize that it's a component of us being a little more mature, but they only understand that at a very, very low level, very sometimes subconsciously. And so what they need is they need guidance. We need to be their mentors, and we need to be their pilgrims. We don't need to control them. What we need to do is we need to just take the, the stance that I believe all teachers and all parents should take, and that is we can't let our kids get too comfortable but they also have to realize we're not too comfortable. We still struggle with things. We just want to protect them from struggling too much. So there's a mantra that goes into the mentoring world that says, if you're comfortable, I'm not teaching and you're not learning. 
We have to push them up onto the edge of the envelope, and we have to make them understand that to learn and to evolve and to change and to grow, they have to struggle just a little bit. But that's the gift of why we struggle as adults. When we overcome a struggle, we better ourselves. We better our environment. We make things better for our family. And so children and students, especially adults, adolescents who are getting to the point where they are looking at adulthood and going, wow, this is going to be uh, either fantastic or horrifying. They have to understand that we struggle the same way they do. We just have been able to compartmentalize it. We've been able to make sense of it. We've been able to do some perspective making and, and that's what we need to project, that we are vulnerable just like they are, because vulnerability projects trust and allows them to build trust in us because they see that we are just like they are. You have to understand that they also need a little bit of discomfort to, to open their minds. Uh, another saying is the input you most dislike is probably going to change you the most. Well, only if you embrace it. And so you have to embrace vulnerability. But you have to understand, just like Dr. Brene Brown says in many of her very, very famous talks, vulnerability is the channel to hope in the long run. We need to make sure that we get there. Uh, the second concept is universal positive regard. We need to understand that we need to treat children as if they are important. Uh, just like Kant's second categorical imperative, people are a means unto themselves. We are not over them. We are with them. They are just as important as we are, and we have to make sure they feel that because kids who don't feel like you honor them, respect them, and give them dignity will not listen to you. They'll tune you out. And because you're showing them dignity and respect, it will build and teach reciprocity, and they will develop a relationship with you and it will allow them to mature through a relationship scenario which is the biggest gift that any teacher or parent or meaningful social uh, actor can give the children in their sphere of influence it builds community it makes everyone feel like they belong in the same boat so you know those two concepts uh, the number one thing obviously uh, don't be afraid to exhibit vulnerability. And number two, always embrace universal positive regard. I love it. I love it. You know, it's so difficult to give a simple answer to a complex question, right? And so you have to unpack it the way you did. And, and you talked about the struggle. And whether you like it or not, as humans develop, there is struggle because human development is complex. It's complex biologically. It's complex psychologically. It's complex socially. The community, the community is complicated. The ecological system is complicated. The culture is complicated. And so we need these frameworks to be relational. We need these relational systems in order to communicate effectively, to have those tough conversations, to make those tough choices, so that at the end of the day, everyone's voice can be heard and respected. I love the way you bridge the gap, buddy Thornton. I love the way you move beyond the uh, 
the different cultures, the different layers of cultures in that response. Very, very brilliant. Uh, and thank you so much for what you bring to this podcast, sir. That's an honor. Absolutely, absolutely. Our, our next panelist, this is, I think this is a perfect, perfect, uh, I would say transformation to the next question here. Uh, this, this next guest, he has inspired many. He has led many. And he is what I like to call a grower because anybody that comes in his vicinity, they will grow. Uh, this, when, when you think of the word uh, growth mindset, you know, one of the persons that come to mind is Dr. Billy Snow. Dr. Billy Snow, please say hello to the people and tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing these days. And we're so grateful to have you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that um, kind introduction and also for, for having me be part of this panel. Um, my name is Billy Snow, and you know, after a, a career as a, a teacher, a principal, a school turnaround and transformation leader, and even a superintendent, I started Transformation Leaders Network, which is a consultancy group, and we focus on three things, um, really putting uh, real practitioners with a history of success um, with educators and systems across this country to focus on equity, which is really a fo focus on racial equity and dismantling systems of, of oppression um, to make sure that all of our children can succeed. Also, school transformation, which includes school turnaround and improvement and innovation. And then finally, leadership development and coaching. So working with developing pipelines of future assistant principals, future principals, and uh, future superintendents. Um, so it's my pleasure to be here uh, representing Transformation Leaders Network and excited to be a part of the panel. Absolutely. Really excited for you, for you being here as well. You know, prior to your superintendency, you also served uh, the second largest district in Texas as the uh, chief transformational innovational um, officer. Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking of Dallas ISD. And so this, uh, this question is tailored to your, uh, your lens, your perspective. And we want to hear, you know, we want to hear how you see this. Uh, through your your lens, and that is how will uh, the virtual environment affect retention, learning, retention, uh, cognitive skills, social skills, behavior skills for adolescent development. That's my question. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question, and um, I think uh, back when the um, COVID-19 problem arose and we began to shut schools down in March, um, I think we immediately had a mixture of, of hope that for innovation and hope for, for change and also an immediate shock factor of having to deal with issues of equity, um, issues of equity regarding technology access, Wi-Fi access, uh, device access. Um, and even just some of the um, situations that our children grow up in where um, they are trying to make it on their own, taking care of their brothers and sisters or having both parents work or, or living in poverty or whatever the situation is, <clears throat> I think one of the things we quickly noticed was that this was not going to be easy. 
And so first of all, I just want to say thank you to all of our teachers and to our principals because they pivoted on a dime to try to put virtual learning together and um, make virtual and distance learning happen and to meet the needs of all of our students. Um, but I think we've all noticed um, some problems that have arisen. Um, number one, uh, learning retention. Uh, NWEA that makes the MAP assessment, which measures uh, math skills, um, has reported that a 10% loss in math has, has happened in, in the time that schools were closed in the spring and then restarted with virtual learning and uh, the, the fall testing occurred. So we've got, you know, a 10% learning loss and, you know, and frankly, they were actually encouraged that it wasn't more than 10% learning loss. And that's just thanks to the, to the work that teachers and, um, and school leaders are doing to try to try to reach out and try to make a difference. But we also learned during this time that school and learning is a human activity. It is a relational activity. And educators across the country are reporting students that are unable to show up for all days of instruction um, virtually or don't necessarily have access to the things that they need. Um, teachers are sometimes in some districts having to teach face-to-face -face and then also teach virtual lessons or have their computer Zoom, Zoom lesson on at the same time. So my concern about retention is that we are unable to include some of the humanity and the human connections into our learning. Um, and we realize the importance of face-to-face -face instruction and see how much the kids are, are missing. And, and, and I, for one, am very concerned about um, learning loss and lack of retention because of those things. Um, I think the next thing we've, we've noticed is that social-emotional learning and support has to be a part of the, of the equation. Um, every single one of our lessons and connections with or, or interactions with students have to begin basically with how are you and how are you doing and what do you need. Um, and those relationships, I think we have to try even harder to establish during this time. And students are struggling with um, depression and anxiety and not being able to um, be with their peers and be in their school environments. Um, to, to the degree that they, that they need to be and they would like to be. So I think that one of the other things we're noticing is that children are in, in seclusion in many cases in their homes or their apartments and with their family and with having, having to share technology and so forth, but their connection to their peers and their connection to their learning has been shifted in many cases to a virtual format um, and some of those, some of those um, things that they would learn socially about, you know, self-discipline and workload management and emotional management are things that are, they're, they're missing right now. And so I do think we have concerns that are, have come out from this pandemic and the educational approach to it, and those are centered around this idea of equity and social emotional learning and how do we support our families and how do we support our students and how do we even support our teachers? Um, how are our teachers social emotional learning um, being met? Um, are they dealing with trauma right now and are, trauma, are traumatized adults trying to educate and help and reach traumatized children and, and who is making, bridging those gaps? 
So, so in short, I, th- I think that we have a lot that's going to be up up in the air, and our children are going. To, we're going to be working on, on trying to repair um, this breakage in our educational system, but even more so, have been woken up to the fact that the gaps that already existed and the equity issues that already existed in our schools, been face to face, have just been exacerbated by having to go to a remote and distant learning process. That's why we need people like you. We need transformational leaders. We need transformational leader networks. We need people that's going to not only motivate, but inspire. Not only inspire, but lead. Not only lead, but grow. You know, and it's going to take a strength-based approach to focus and strengthen inclusion and diversity and to make it relational, to make everyone see that every child No child will be left behind. Oh, this is getting good. (laughs) This is getting good because you talked about the potential. You talked about the potential that every person has to not only discover themselves, but to be nurtured. Not only to be nurtured, but to go from brokenness to healing, right? Because we know hurt people hurt people. And so even the teachers need to be healed from this because they have just, bless their heart, they have just been going and going. The principals have just been going and going and trying to nurture, right? And trying not to leave anybody behind. But we need new strategies because this is a new age. This is a digital age. This is a virtual age. And this is a good conversation. And I believe this is the perfect segue. This is the perfect segue for our next panelist, Shelly Anderson. Shelly Anderson, please say hello to the people and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently. Hello, everyone. I'm currently a principal in Washington, D.C., um, northwest D.C., if you're familiar with D.C., not too far from um, the Howard campus. I am at a school that is a turnaround school. Um, We have um, quite a few challenges that we work against. Um, but I think the one thing I can say is that we have overcome challenge after challenge um, since I've arrived and we continue to um, impress um, in the way that we face the challenges that we come up against um, and we continue to um, be triumphant um, regardless of the odds and so I, um, I'm a Texas girl but um, I have really developed a love for um, Northwest D.C., the neighborhoods that I serve, the community that I serve, um, and the men and women that I have the privilege of serving with every day as we work with the children of our community. Absolutely, absolutely. We thank you for everything that you do. You know, one word comes to mind when I think of Shelly Anderson, and that word is commitment. Not only does... Not only does she coach, uh, not only does she do consulting, not only does she write books, right? Uh, she's also, you, uh, in 2019, you served with the Greater Washington Urban League uh, Election Committee as the chair. You chaired, you chaired that committee. And you, in 2018, um, you were at Stanford University School and you became the Retool Fellow. Uh, with that fellowship program there. So you have had your hands in a lot 
of things, um, Ms. Anderson, and we applaud you for that. This is a good segue, I believe, for you because we, we, uh, Dr. Snow was just talking about uh, equity. He was just talking about uh, relational, the relational aspect. He, he, was, he was talking about inclusion. He was talking about diversity. And so, you know, my question for you is what does the need for universal interventions in school, community, and education for adolescent development, what autism or autism spectrum disorder, ASD for short, what does that mean to you? How do we include that in? What's your thoughts? Well, um, when, when I saw this, I was happy that you, you presented this, me with this question. For one, um, not only am I a school principal, I'm also a mom. Um, and something that you will not, um, or people would not know from looking at my resume is that um, last school year, 2019-2020 school year, um, I was in uh, my second year as a turnaround principal here in D.C., and my son, who was five at the time, was in his um, kindergarten year at a local elementary school. I work in D.C., um, but we live in the suburbs of Virginia. Um, at the time, he had not yet been diagnosed with having an autism spectrum disorder. Um, and so as he entered kindergarten, um, just to tell you a little bit about his background, he, he walked early, he spoke early, um, he learned how to say his alphabet before he was at the age of one, um, and about a week later learned how to say it in perfect order backwards. Um, he taught himself how to write the Russian alphabet at the age of three, um, and he knew every country in the world um, around the same age and could identify them by shape. Um, so imagine my surprise when I was um, approached by <laughs> his school with um, this thought that he may need special education services. Um, because um, everything that I knew about him, everything that I know about him um, has to do with his gifts and his talents. But um, what they knew about him was that um, he was a five-year-old who was unable to stay in class. Um, he was leaving the classroom, running around. Um, they also knew that he was African-American. Um, and I bring this up because... Um, for some reason, that seemed to influence the way that they handled the situation. So um, instead of calling his mom, um, who is not only his mom, but a seasoned educator, um, they seemed to think that this was in some way just sort of normal behavior. Um, and so his leaving, his elopement from the classroom continued on for about three weeks. Um, and the only reason why I found out about it is because he told me that um, his best friends were the principals. Actually, he was calling them by their first names. Um, and so when I went up to the school, they approached me and they said, yeah, he hangs out in our offices all day. He won't go to class, so on and so forth. Um, and they talked about um, the obsessive nature of his conversation. At the time, um, he was um, a Beto supporter. So um, he was sitting in the principal's office talking politics. I think what really interests me about this situation is that 
what they saw was um, his skin color. They saw um, that in he was a behavior issue because um, he was not um, sitting in the kindergarten classroom doing sort of like the normal things. Um, but instead of seeing potential, they saw deficit. Um, and so when we continued on and finally um, it was determined that there was a, an autism spectrum disorder, it was extremely important to me to change the narrative for my son, um, to make sure that the educators in the room understood that what support looked like for him was making sure that he was engaged in a way where he could really um, be interested in the content. Isn't that what we do for all children? Um, and that should not be any different for my son. Um, it meant that they understood that just because he now had this label of um, autism spectrum disorder, it didn't limit um, in any way, shape, or form what he was able to do or to learn, um, but really expanded the possibilities. Um, and it challenged them to be an even better version of themselves than they had been before. Um, I also wanted to make sure that they understood that you never just judge a book by its cover. Because my son was African American, they saw a behavior issue. Um, his kindergarten teacher initially thought that he might just be hungry, is what she told me, um, because he was asking for food. My son's actually just kind of greedy. Um, and so. Not only was he leaving the classroom because he got to hang out with adults, but because they continued to give him snacks. She thought that maybe he just came from a home where he didn't have food. Um, big assumption, but once again, it, it just speaks to the fact that we have to make sure that the people who work with our kids see our kids as individuals that they see our kids um, through the lens of their strengths, um, that they see the possibilities when they work with our children. And regardless of um, what type of label is placed upon them, they continue to see the dreams that the families, the parents, and those children have for themselves and for their futures. Because if that doesn't happen, then what happens is kids start to be held back by the assumptions um, and the limits of the adults in the room, and that's just not fair. That's something that we ha have to continue to fight against. So I'm extremely passionate about this, um, not only as a school principal. Um, I work at a school that's 100% minority, um, and we, we have kids who come from all eight wards, um, but mostly from wards one and eight, which has some of the highest levels of poverty. But I'm also the mother of a student who is here in a suburb um, school district, but I saw firsthand how assumptions could have limited his choices, his opportunities. Um, and so it's something that I will continue to um, talk about and to um, fight against and to fight for for the rest of my life because it's extremely important to me that whether you are um, a practitioner or um, whether you are a policymaker 
are, whether you are someone who um, has the opportunity and the privilege to vote for school board members, that you understand that it really comes down to making sure that the people who lead our young people are committed and dedicated to making sure that they have everything that they need. Um, it doesn't matter if that child has a label on them, doesn't have a label on them. All of our children have unique strengths, inherent gifts, and talents. And the interventions that we provide them, and all kids need interventions, has to be how do we make the most of those strengths and talents to offset whatever um, challenges those children face. That was so good. That was so good. You know, let me give you another word. Resilient. I heard so much resiliency. Not only did I hear your heart, but I heard how you hunt for the good stuff. How you hunt for the good. And that takes grace. Educators have to be graced to be an educator, to be a teacher. They have to have hope. They have to have peace. They have to have joy. They have to have love because all of those elements are mixed together. They have to be combined together to give those those wings, those, those mother wings, those father wings that we have to impart to our adolescents to our students to our children so that they can soar and so tonight you showed us how to soar and we thank you for what you bring to this podcast miss shelly anderson thank you for having me thank you absolutely absolutely you know that segues to a i want to i, I kind of want to talk about the pros and the cons and let me let me pull from dr billy snow again because what you just said uh shelly anderson and what i'm about to ask uh dr snow i think it parallels i think it's a line and i, I want to pull from him to see what uh, he has to say about the virtual environment and what you just spoke about but uh dr snow my question to you is what what are the pros and cons, or what pros and cons have you noticed um, for children after participating in the virtual environment where, where changes can be implemented for opportunity gaps? You, miss, you mentioned that earlier and equity issues. You mentioned that as well. But how does that play into the conversation that we just heard tonight? Thank you uh, very much, and uh, thank you, Ms. Anderson, for talking about um, your son and for really uh, hitting home with a story about how you know we can do our best for every single child and that um, we have to address implicit bias and microaggressions and low expectations of students. And I just thank you for advocating for your own child and for all of the children that you serve. Um, and when you think about virtual education, um, I think some things that we've noticed that have been good, or at least I've noticed in my experience, have been that districts have pulled out some amazing, um, I guess, action steps toward equity related to um, 
acquiring Wi-Fi in cities and acquiring devices for all students. I know that some districts like Dallas ISD, for example, have um, allocated enormous amount of resources to uh, Wi-Fi hotspots and to um, devices for children. I know other districts that have set up Wi-Fi in their buses and parks them in neighborhoods so that children can have access to Wi-Fi signals at home. So I think on, on the positive, um, technology and equity-wise, um, there have been some things tried that have forced us to deal with the equity issue of access and opportunity. Um, I think <clears throat> exposing that as a problem and forcing us to finally deal with it is a positive. I think on the virtual learning front, I've seen some districts, it's very inconsistent, but the best models I've seen have been where um, schools have been able to establish small uh, pods where they're able to um, reach out to students and do some small group intervention or small group uh, outreach to students. Um, that is, and they have not tried to just mimic the um, school day. Um, mimicking the school day and trying to have students um, sit in front of a computer for six to seven hours is, is, is not going to work and it's definitely against recommendations by um, about good virtual education instruction. So the best example I, examples I've seen have been where teachers have been able to uh, provide lessons and resources and access to students and then able to do small group outreach um, to students. For example, I'm a middle school, uh, I'm middle school is a very uh, challenging age and I work with a school that has been able to establish small group action teams for their, for their students um, because realistically they have a lot of students who are not turning on their, their screens um, during, during virtual learning time and they wanted to make sure that they were able to have build that relationship with students um, outside of the regular uh, class check-in times. And so I've seen them doing some things where they're reaching out and providing uh, a virtual kind of uh, small group, not for the sake of instruction, but for the sake of assistance and answering questions, and then also providing that social-emotional learning support um, for students. <clears throat> I think at the elementary level, um, some things that I've seen that have been positive um, has been, again, uh, including uh, parents. I've seen some elementary schools include parents and, um, and students in the learning and, and setting up opportunities for them to engage with actual lessons and instruction, um, but also to be able to actually um, learn more about what, how they can help at home. I've seen school districts that have uh, created kind of online virtual learning academies for parents so that they can know, you know, what we are covering, how they can help at home, and that's never a bad thing. The more that you, at, that you can reach out, reach out to your parents and involve them. Uh, the cons I still see are that too many school districts are trying to just recreate the school day, the traditional school day in a virtual environment, uh, such as requiring students to attend um, during their class period all day long and rotate from class to class um, for almost eight hours a day. Some schools, you know, were trying to recreate too much of that. I think I've seen another uh, thing that concerns me that's a con to me is um, not being having the difficulty of being able to adapt instruction, we really need to be figuring out what are the main things that students need to learn 
and how they can be learned more with more relevance and more of a human connection and more deeply um, instead of um, just this broad touch of everything. Because we already have data that shows students are, have exhibited learning loss. So we need to know what are the main, uh, main standards, the priority standards in each grade level and each content and reduce the amount of what we are trying to teach the children, but increase the depth and increase the relevance, especially while participating in virtual instruction. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Dr. Billy Snow and all the panelists, thank you, thank you for, for bringing so much information. The, the topic tonight is roles of the parents, community, government, and education in adolescent development. Okay, like I mentioned earlier, the COVID-19 pandemic has continually altered the way we breathe, the way we exhale, the way we have gathered, united, and the way we live. But, you know, with that being said, ladies first, we're going to do some takeaways. Um, Dr. Anderson, I want you to go first, and then uh, Buddy Thornton, and then Dr. Snow. But uh, ladies first, what are your takeaways for tonight? I think um, my biggest takeaway is that COVID has given us an opportunity to reimagine the education space, um, to think about how we can make it more inclusive for everyone. And so all of us now have um, this opportunity to make sure that it doesn't go back to the way that it was before. Um, the, the system has been broken for years. Um, everyone knows that. Um, but we were sort of limping along, um, trying to create patches, trying to, you know, put certain things in place. Um, COVID came along and sort of blew everything up. No one was prepared for it. Um, but it has forced us to think about the way that we do things. It has forced us to um, change some things that have been in place for the last hundred years. Um, and so I think the conversation now has to be on the path forward. Do we allow the innovation that um, has already occurred to just disappear? Is it going to be business as usual? Are, are we really going to take the lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 and use it to make sure that we come with a stronger, more inclusive system? Absolutely, absolutely. Who's, who's next? Well, Isaiah, uh, first I want to say uh, to uh, Shelly and uh, Billy, uh, not to be familiar, but uh, just you know, it's powerful that people can get together in a forum and discuss the failures of the past and what do we look at for the future. But my biggest takeaway about tonight is we need to look at the number one resource that most people set aside or at least minimize, and that is the incredible ability of our young people, the adolescents that we're striving to teach they are sophisticated about the domain that we are trying to transfer into. They are far more comfortable in the digital space than most adults are willing to admit. 
And in most of the situations, especially as I do parent coaching, I'm not in the school space as much as I am the home space. Almost every successful intervention that we've done with a family has been by convincing the parents, the, the caregivers, to allow the adolescents to co-create the learning environment, to tell the adults, why, why am I failing and what will work? What excites me? What will allow me to dive headfirst into the learning environment? When we allow them to co-create the space, everybody moves forward. The parents get far more comfortable. Parents have reported back to me that the teachers are telling them, wow, I don't know what you did. You flipped a switch, but your child is really participating in the space. And it's simply a matter of we have to give them the trust that we expect them to give us and allow them to co-create what really is going to be their future. Yeah. Um... I think that's great. And I was actually thinking about um, student voice and choice while um, our discussions were going on, because one of the things that we've also learned is that this system that we have created and been, as, Ms., as Dr. Anderson has said and as Buddy has said, that we, it's a system that was created long ago. And we found out during this time period that it, that it really isn't working. And the best way to, to actually help it to work is to actually, you know, remember the, the, the focus, remember the target. It is the, it is the students. It is our scholars. And the more, to, the more that we can include them and, and, and get them to tell us how they learn best and what they want to study about and, and, heck, even telling us how to use technology and virtual instruction to reach them better, um, the better off we're going to be for seeking seeking real innovative change. So yeah, I'd like to piggyback on just both of what our other you know colleagues, our panelists have said. Um, that we realize the system was broken. We have had it thrown in our faces. Um, and if we truly care about kids and want to serve them, we will talk to them. We will listen to them and help them to help us create a better environment for them. So that all of our kids can truly succeed for the first time. Let's create a system that was actually for the first time designed for them and for all of them. Wow. Tonight was a night of transformation. Topic tonight, roles of the parents, community, government, and education and adolescent development. This was another Impactful night of the impact of education leadership. This is episode 65. Our panelists tonight, Dr. Billy Snow, Shelly Anderson, and Buddy Jordan. Good night. Welcome to the Impact of Educational Leadership Podcast with ID3 for Isaiah Drone III. This show was designed to provide an exclusive forum on educational achievement gaps related to learner success while discovering relationships and family issues in a diverse setting. 